this isn't a sermon. I'm not really going to be preaching to you. This is a lot more relaxed. So if I say something uh, that just doesn't make any sense, raise your hand. Let's we can talk. You know, we can make this a little bit more interactive. I'm going to apologize straight up at the beginning to you guys because I originally wanted to have handouts to pass to everyone, and I printed them out at work, and I went straight from work to the airport, and I forgot my handouts. So I promise you that I'm going to put the handouts, I'm going to upload them on Facebook, and you guys can refer to them. And it's going to make my talk a little bit more confusing, so I'm going to try my best to kind of outline the points for you. So if you guys are taking notes, you can follow along. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Uh, again, what we're talking about is how the gospel connects with our work. And I'm going to be entirely honest with all of you. I'm 29 years old, so maybe a, a little older than some of you. Who, who among you is younger than 29? Okay. Okay, so most of you. Uh, and some of you might be a little older than me, but just to give you guys a sense, I've only been in the workforce for four years since I graduated from law school. Uh, so I'm not by any means an expert on what it means to have the gospel transform your work. You know, I'm not necessarily, it's like one republic of lyric, right? Like, oh, but I'm not that old, young, but I'm not that old. <laughs> so anyway, that's where, that's where I'm at. I'm not that old, but I'm not that old. So I do not by any means consider myself an expert on any of the things I'm going to share. Uh, my thoughts on this subject of how the gospel impacts and transforms our work is very much still a work in progress. And so afterward, the reason I'm saying all this setup is, afterward I really want to get your feedback because this is something that I want to revisit as we keep going forward. Uh, because one of my hopes is that we are going to, as this generation of youth builds up, we're going to build out something for young adults and young families that they can enter into. And I think topics like marriage and work are very, very relevant for us as we become full-fledged adults. Uh, many of you guys are already adults, but some of you aren't yet. Um, and some of you are kind of still in that middle phase, right? So again, I just want to get your feedback. All that said, even though I've only had four years of experience, I think I do have something to share on this topic because I work in the rough and tumble world of Texas politics and Texas policy, and especially given everything that's happened in the U.S. at least over the last two years, uh, that's caused me to wrestle in some pretty profound ways with how my faith interacts with my professional work, or to say it, a different way, how the gospel message should transform the way I understand and pursue my work. Uh, and after thinking about that for a long while, I think that's not just true for me working in politics and policy. I think that's actually true for everyone in every vocation. Whatever you're doing in life, the gospel transforms how you approach your work, which is huge because, you know, the average American or Canadian spends about a third of their lives in work, working. Um, and, and in the course of my investigations, I found a few resources to be helpful uh, in general. Luther's written some really good stuff. Calvin's written some really good stuff. But a good entry point is actually Tim Keller's uh, Every Good Endeavor. So if you guys want to write that down, a lot of what I'm writing on uh, takes from Luther and Calvin, but it's really, I think, the best introduction to this subject comes from Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor. Um, okay, so that's enough introduction. We have a little less than an hour to talk now, uh, and a lot to cover. So here's, if you want to, if you're trying to outline what I'm talking, since I don't have the handouts, I bring it out for you guys. This is what we're doing, right? Uh, I'm going to start off by talking briefly about re the relevance of the gospel to work. So I'm going to start off by talking briefly about the relevance of the gospel to work. Then I'm going to talk about the biblical view 
of work. And then I'm going to end by talking about five ways the gospel redeems work. And when I conclude, I'm going to talk about some practical steps that I think would be really, really cool for our church to pursue in the future. But they're, they're more like seeds I'm just scattering out there. There's, there's no proposal to implement this at all. I want you guys to start thinking about how can we start to implement this as a body, as a people, as a church. All right, so uh, again, I'm going to say that again. Talk about the relevance of the gospel to our work. Then I'm going to talk about the biblical view of work. Then I'm going to talk about five ways the gospel redeems work. Okay, so what does the gospel have to do with work? One of the first problems we have in answering that question is that we have an overly privatized view of the gospel, especially in North America. There's a difference in our society between public truth and private truth. I don't know if some of you have heard that before, but there's a difference between public truth and private truth. So what, what is that? Public truth is a claim about reality that is accepted as true, that we believe is true for everybody. It's true for everybody. So something typically in our culture, we accept scientific, mathematical, and historical truths as public truth, right? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, the chemical formula for water is H2O. Uh, that sort of thing. It's true for everything, er, for everybody. That's public truth. But private truth is something that's pretty unique to Western culture. It's a lesser kind of truth. Private truth is a, a claim about reality that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And a lot of people approach faith that way. It might be true for you, it might be, but it's not true for me. It's much closer to an opinion. Like, my favorite color is navy blue. Your favorite color may not be navy blue, but that's my private truth. Uh, because we live in a culture in North America that is so incredibly diverse, ethnically, religiously, all kinds of ways, we, in the course of our lives, we make friends with all kinds of people. Sometimes we fall in love with all kinds of people. Uh, and in order to get along, and in order to minimize friction when we come across people from very different backgrounds, we downplay our differences, and we downplay uh, things that might divide us. Uh, and we emphasize what we hold in common. That's a very human response just to get along with people. But the effect of that is we make the gospel into a private truth, not a public truth. You get what I'm saying? It's more of an opinion than what we claim is a fact that's true about everyone. Uh, Christian faith uh, gets reduced that way. But the Christian gospel is not an opinion. It's an announcement of the news. Christian religion is a little different from many other religions in that it's not setting out a program for you to follow. The gospel is not, you have to do all this stuff, right? You must do all this stuff. The gospel is an announcement that something has happened. And so it's in the realm of historical truth. Just like 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, the ocean blue uh, we are claiming that it is a historical fact that there was this dead Jewish guy 2,000 years ago who rose again from the dead. And because of that, everything in life is different. That's what the gospel is. It's a truth that's true for everyone. If you believe it, it radically changes the way you approach everything, and in including work. Um, it's, it changes the way we you know, raise our families, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so for a Christian who believes the gospel, we have to start uh, examining work from the standpoint of what the Bible says. So that was my brief like gospel relevance to work. It, if you believe the gospel is public truth, it transforms the way you see everything. Uh, and now we're moving to the biblical worldview of work. So if you're following along, uh, kind of in my outline that I'm showing with you, there are three points under that. The original goodness of work, the broken nature of work, 
and the redemption of work. Yeah. Just a question. I know you mentioned we can ask, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you mentioned with Christianity, it's not a program you follow, but just yeah. like an announcement. But yeah. isn't the idea like once you hear the gospel truth, yeah. you're presented with the choice? Yeah. Either accept Jesus yeah. as your God yeah. and follow Him, yeah. or. But it's a, it's it's yes, it is a confrontation with reality. But we're saying it's a reality that is really true. It's not something that you have to contemplate or anything like that. This is something that actually happened. When we're talking about the gospel strictly, gospel, the word gospel means good news. So we're talking about the announcement that Jesus has risen and therefore conquered death and sin. That's, it's just, that's what the gospel is. Okay. In response to the gospel, we offer our loving obedience. That's actually what the entire Letters to the Romans is about. Uh, but anyway, uh, good question. Any other questions on the first part? Uh, so biblical worldview of work is the original goodness of work, the broken nature of work, and the redemption of work. First, the original goodness of work. The Hebrew scriptures had an understanding of work that was utterly unique in the ancient world. Uh, it thought of work as a good thing. And that really was revolutionary because in nearly every other culture, especially in the Near East, work was a bad thing. It was either a punishment given on human beings, or it was a task given to humans because it was too low for the gods to be working. Uh, so let me sh just share two quick examples with you to illustrate that. First example, Pandora's box. How many of you guys have heard of the myth of Pandora's box, right? Basically, the Greek god Zeus was angry with humanity because the titan Prometheus stole fire from his lightning and shared it with the humans. And so to punish the human beings, he gave this beautiful woman, Pandora, a mysterious box. It was the most beautiful box she'd ever seen. And, but he had said, and he said it was a gift to her, but he said, knowing that she would be driven crazy by what he said, she, he said, do not open the box. Do not open the box, do not open the box. So she was really, really curious. She opened the box, all kinds of bad things came into the world, and like death, disease, and work. Work came out. It was one of the bad things that was inflicted on humanity as a punishment. Second example, in Babylonian mythology, the creation of the world is told in the epic poem, the Enuma Elish, right? And in that story, the world is created as a result of this cosmic war between the gods. Uh, and once the winning gods are basking in their victory, they realize, hey, we have this whole world, but we don't want to manage it. That's like, so we just want to enjoy. We just want to enjoy leisure. We want to be high up here doing the things that gods do, which is not working. So we're going to create human beings as slaves to take care of the world for us. That was the Babylonian worldview. So again, ancient cultures, one of two predominant views about the nature of work. Either work was a punishment by the gods inflicted on humanity, or it was a sign of humanity's low status, its lack of respect and dignity. Only slaves were. And that's the view of work you find in virtually every ancient culture. The ancient Egyptians, Indians, Chinese, the rich enjoyed leisure, they wanted to be like the gods, and the poor and the slaves worked for That's the ancient conception of work, but not in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we're presented with the radical picture of a God who is working, right? A creator God. The world is not created out of a cosmic battle. The world is constructed, it's built as a pure gift of generosity and beauty and delight that God produced out of nothing. And that was a totally new conception in the ancient world of what God was like. You know, there's a lot of debate about Genesis 1 in some circles that people get caught up in. And I know people might have questions about that, but I don't really want to go there because I don't think it's necessary here. Evolution, creationism, intelligent design, you guys have heard it all. Um, 
what the Old Testament scholars all agree about is that in Genesis 1, what we are seeing is that the author is presenting God as a builder who is creating the universe as his temple. The steps God takes, starting with making light, constructing a roof, creating lamps to hang in the sky, are all the steps a builder in the ancient Middle East would take when constructing an ancient temple. He's following that pattern. And the very last step in constructing a temple in the ancient Near East would be placing two images of the God in the center. An image of the male deity and the female deity. The idols, right? You place it in the center of the temple. And what is so radical about Genesis 1 is that God does the same thing, except his image is not an idol. His image are two human beings, male and female, to represent his presence in his temple, which is the universe. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. Uh, so think that through. If the creator God is a worker and human beings are created to represent his presence in the world, that means that we also must be workers. Not as a sign of low stat our low status, like the Babylonians, not because we're slaves, but because of our very high status. It's like Lennox was talking about in the worship, because we're the sons and daughters of God, because we share in his royalty. That's why we work. So God charges human beings with a task to be gardeners. And I'm not going to go too deep on this because we don't have time, but think about that for a second. What is involved with gardening? What, what you do with gardening is you are bringing beauty and life and order in the wilderness. You're producing that out of the wilderness. And you do that by gardening. You take the raw material of soil and plants and seeds that you're presented with, and you fashion it into something that contributes to the flourishing of human society. Flowers and food. You're bringing beauty and life. Or to take an example from human history, you find wolves and you tame them into dogs, man's best friend, right? That's work. Uh, Adam names the animals. That's the story we get in Genesis chapter 2. So again, gardening is the fundamental paradigm for human work in under the Bible's conception of it. So we're supposed to be taking the raw materials presented to us in whatever manner they're presented to us and fashion them into something that contributes to the common good, beauty and life, flowers and food. Uh, you study different chemicals, you pound them into dust in a little tablet, now you have medicine that pharmacists get out, right? That's one example. In the Christian understanding, work is not this dirty thing we leave to the slaves, it's the way we imitate God by bringing beauty and life and order out of the chaos not to serve ourselves, and not because we're slaves. So, it's because Christians rediscovered that biblical view of work, actually, that they were able to totally transform Roman society. If you look at human history in the first century, for both the Romans and the Greeks, the people who worked were the low-status poor people and the slaves. The ideal situation was to be a landed gentleman, right? To own a bunch of land, have a bunch of slaves working for you, so that you can, you know, be a general of an army or be a senator in the Roman Senate, that kind of thing. Uh, has anyone seen the movie 300? You guys seen the movie about the Spartans and how great they were as a fearsome military force? The reason why Sparta was so great at war was because every male citizen was devoted 24-7 to military training. But how were they able to do so? It's because they enslaved all of the surrounding countryside to work for them. That's the ancient view of work that the Christians turned totally upside down. Uh, a lot of people sometimes quote Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians as a way to shame the poor. Uh, in the letter, Paul basically says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Has, has anyone heard that? If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And so a lot of people quote that to say, yeah, that's why poor people, you should stay poor, because you're not working. But actually, Paul was saying that to criticize the rich. 
because it was the rich who were not working. And so he, he was trying to bring us back to that original biblical conception of work. Work is a good thing. Even if you're wealthy, you ought to be contributing to the common good uh, instead of eating based off of the labor of others. So again, I just want to emphasize to you guys, for the Christians, it was a high calling to work and thereby contribute to the good of one another. It was a shame to be idle or not contribute. Because by working, you're renewing the image of God within you, and you're serving your new. And yet, even if you believe me when I say that work was originally created to be good, clearly something went wrong, right? Uh, so we're getting to the brokenness of work. Because all over the world today, even in every industry, we see the brokenness of work. So quickly, if you're following along, uh, there are three ways that work went wrong. Three ways that work went wrong. The frustration of work, the rivalry of work, and the pride of work. The frustration of work, rivalry of work, pride of work. I know I have so many sub-points. Sorry guys, that's why I wanted the handouts. Please try and follow along with what I'm saying. So three ways work went wrong. Frustration of work, rivalry of work, pride of work. All right, so frustration of work. I'm gonna assume all of us in this room are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, right? Genesis two and three. All right, guys. Fall of mankind, we disobeyed God when we ate from the tree of knowledge for of good and evil. And afterward, God pronounces a curse on mankind because by sinning, they had cut themselves off from himself, who is the source of life and light and joy. And the curse on Adam is very significant for our discussion here. It's Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. See, work was part of the original intention of God. The existence of work itself wasn't a punishment. It was a blessing, actually, to us. It was saying that we are like God. And, we, and we've been saying work is like gardening, right? You take the raw materials of the soil and you produce something that contributes to the common good, flowers and food. But now, because we live under this curse of sin and death, Work is going to be frustrating. That's what God is pronouncing upon us. The curse is now work, which is good, is going to become toil, which is bad. We put in 90%, but we only get 10% back. It's frustrating. We plant flowers and food, but the ground gives us weeds and thorns instead. Um, and that's our experience with work now. I was talking to my dad the other day, he's retired now, but he was talking about how for the majority of his life, he was with one company kind of working up the ranks, right? Uh, and he's proud of what he's done, but when he compares how much effort he put into his work to what is already starting to passing, passing away now that he's kind of retired, uh, he, he kind of wonders, what was the point of all that effort, right? Uh, because, because of the cur curse, work becomes frustrating. Second, moving to the second point, the rivalry of work. What happens in a situation where our work becomes frustrating? We see a hint of that in Genesis chapter four, with the story of Cain and Abel, right? You, you know that story too. Cain offered a sacrifice that was rejected by God. Abel offered a sacrifice that was accepted by God. Cain became upset and jealous, murdered his brother in a rage. So what's that got to do with work? Well, look at that passage, and I'm not going to read it because I do want to finish this. Uh, but if you look at the passage, even though uh, work had been frustrated on the curse, Adam's sons are still pursuing the gardening vocation. Cain is tending to the fields, Abel's tending to the animals. Uh, 
and Abel offers the firstborn of his flock. There's that, and uh, Cain offers his vegetables, his fruit, the, the produce of the land that he's been tending to. And for whatever reason, Abel's is accepted and Cain's is rejected. And he feels like his work, Abel's work has been accepted. His work, the produce of his life, has been rejected by God. And so there's a, there's a creation of a sense of rivalry. And that's part of the reason why uh, Cain lashes out against Abel. And that's the way work operates for us, too. We see others are in the way. We start to perceive that others are in the way to our rise to the top. We feel rivalry. We're angry at the successes of other people. I don't know, maybe some of you guys are like really, really happy whenever really good news happens to a friend, but I'm not like that. I get, I'm always like, oh man, they're here, I'm still here, what, what's going on? And that's the way we are, especially with work. Oh, they're already earning this much, I'm still earning here. Uh, oh, they're already able to buy that house and move out. I'm still here. We, we, we have that sense of rivalry. Uh, and finally, I want to move on to, uh, just to close that off. When we start to perceive that, it starts to crush our spirit. It starts, and we start to become destructive to the people around us. So finally, there's the pride of work. King shows us what happens when our work is futile under the curse. But Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, actually shows us what's happened even when our work is successful under the curse. See, Genesis chapter 11, again, it's about the Tower of Babel, and it's about work. It really is about work. We don't realize that. It's about a construction project. It's a building project for a church, basically. Uh, the people decide, we're going to come together, and we're going to work together, and we're going to build the tallest tower in the world. But why? Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, gives us the motivation. It's to make a name for ourselves. Pride, that's the motivation. We're gonna make a we're gonna build this tall thing, and then we'll know we're somebody, right? That's the motivation. The purpose was their own glory, and that's work under the curse. See, originally work was outwardly oriented. You're working in order to contribute something to the common good, flowers and food for everyone. But under the curse, work is about me. It's about proving to everyone else that I matter because of my work. That's the pride of work. Uh, and once we start to do that, we become destructive. We become destructive to ourselves, and we become, again, hateful to other people. So to sum up that part again, uh, I know that was quite a bit. What went wrong with work? Work fell to the curse of sin. Work became frustrated. It produced rivalry. And the goal of work is distorted because it's self-centered rather than other-centered, God-centered. Uh, if that's the case, then what's our hope? And the gospel gives us the answer. John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father has been working, and so I have been working. Jesus Christ came as the perfect worker, right? From the age of 12 to when he began his ministry at about age 30, uh, for about 18 years, Jesus was a carpenter like Joseph. When he comes back to his hometown, folks say, Isn't this guy, this, this prophet, the guy that was our car carpenter? Jesus was a blue collar guy for about 18 years. Uh, you know, in, in those days, they started working, they started apprenticing under their fathers at the age of 12. And his entire ministry was a labor. It was a quest, a work, a finished product that he revealed at the cross and launched with his resurrection. And what's more, we see that all over the Bible, in the new creation, in heaven, we have this false picture that heaven's going to be like us floating on clouds, playing harps, and that kind of thing. That's not the picture we're, we're presented in the Bible at all. Uh, at the end of time, we see the reunion of heaven and earth. We see the recreation of the Garden of Eden, but now it's a garden city. 
That's the new Jerusalem that comes down in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The promise is that at the end of time, Jesus' followers, us, will be ruling nations and angels. So who are we going to be ruling? We don't, I don't know how that all works out. It's not clearly told to us. We are promised that we will, we will be ruling. We're going to be judging. We're going to be settling accounts. We're working in the new creation. It's going to be like this world, but perfected and renewed. And every corner of the world is going to stream into the capital city, the New Jerusalem, the Garden City, bringing the gifts of their culture as a work of praise to the Father. Gold, camels, silk, wine, timber. That's work. That's produce. That's activity. That's production. Uh, and so that's what the new creation is supposed to look like. And if, if you want to get a really good understanding of that point in particular, again, there's a really helpful Tim Keller sermon on Isaiah chapter 6 that I would encourage y'all to check out. Uh, and it's free. It's free on YouTube. Some of those, that stuff you have to buy, but this one's free. We are promised that in the new creation, work is going to continue. Not in its current futile form, but in its perfected heavenly form. Work becomes worship again. It becomes God-centered again. And if it's God-centered, that's awesome because that's liberating for us and that's a blessing to other people. It's only when work is self-centered that it's destructive. And that's actually one of Paul's major points in his letters, is that because of Jesus' gift of the Spirit to us now, we were talking about Pentecost, right? The reception of the Spirit. Because the Spirit dwells in us now, today we can participate in the work that is going to happen in the new creation. It's like we're a new creation in advance because we have the Spirit. Because we have the Spirit, we're new creation in advance. That's what Paul, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and 15. So you get a sense of what I'm saying. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I lay the foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on me. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, the day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So what's Paul talking about here? It can sound kind of confusing. Paul is saying that our foundation is the gospel. Our foundation is Christ, right? But everything we do with our lives is building on that foundation of Christ. And on the day of judgment, the work of our lives is going to be tested almost like it's being tested by fire. If it's worthy material, like gold, silver, or precious stones, when you test those materials through fire, they become purified. They become better. They become purer. They become more beautiful. But if, it's un if we build on the foundation of Christ with unworthy materials, like wood, hawk, uh, hay, or straw, they're going to burn up. He, he clarifies he's not talking about salvation. The person's going to be saved. That's verse 15 in chapter 3. He's talking about the quality of your life's work and whether it persists in the new creation or not. Again, this is kind of mysterious, but it gives us a sense of meaning in whatever we're doing. Somehow what we're doing today is going to mysteriously be incorporated in the new creation. What we do today matters, and it's going to be tested by fire on the day of judgment. This is not about salvation. This is about the gracious lovingness of God to include what we're doing today in his future world that he's bringing. Does that make sense? 
I, I don't want anyone to think that this is talking about salvation. This is talking about the product of all work. So tying all this together, the Bible teaches that work was not originally a, punish, a punishment, as other traditions taught, but a royal commission, a way for us to imitate and honor God by contributing to the common good and to his glory. But because, curse, because of the curse of sin, work has gone wrong. It's become futile. It leads to rivalry. It produces destructive pride. But Jesus redeems and restores us so that now we can work again. That's basically the summary of everything I've said basically this last half hour. But that leads us to the next question, which is going to take the next half hour. <laughs> How now are we supposed to work? How now are we supposed to work? So those are the five principles I'm talking about. And again, this is very, 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 very heavily re reliant on Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. So if you want more detail on everything I'm talking about, I really encourage y'all to read it. And I want y'all to read it, because if you read it, then you can help me put all this stuff together practically for our church going future. If it's all just in Brian's head, nothing's going to happen. It has to get in your head. All right. Five principles on how the gospel redeems our work. First, the gospel gives us a new identity without work, which work would crush you. I'm going to expand on all these, but I'm going to give it to you now. First, the gospel gives you a new identity without which work would crush you. Second, the gospel gives you a new confidence in the dignity of all work without which work could bore you. All right, so the gospel gives you a confidence in the dignity of all work without which work could bore you. Third, the gospel gives you a moral compass without which work could corrupt you. The gospel gives you a moral compass without which work could corrupt you. Fourth, the gospel gives you a new world view without which work would be your master rather than your servant. Master rather than servant. The gospel gives us a new world view. Finally, Everyone keeping up so far, I don't want to talk to you guys. Right. Fifth, and finally, the gospel gives you hope without which work would frustrate you and thwart you. The gospel gives you hope without which work would frustrate you and thwart you. All right, so first, the gospel gives you a new identity without which work would crush you. The great Walsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, before he was an evangelist, he was actually a medical doctor. And he noticed something especially about people in the professions. He lived in like the 1950s, right? So he, to him, the professions were lawyers, doctors, dentists, uh, high finance, right? That kind of thing. And you notice about folks in that kind of line of work, uh, entry into a professional career, like a, becoming a doctor, really begins to dominate your identity. Uh, he even went so far to say that he knew a lot of fellow physicians who, when they died, they would want to put this on their gravestone. Born a man, died a doctor, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and what he meant by that was, generally speaking, if you're one of these high professions that come with a lot of status, the prestige of the profession passes so deeply into you that they really do a number on your identity, uh, the way you understand yourself. You feel good about yourself because you do this. This is who you are, I am a doctor. You know you're somebody because no matter what anyone else says, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a dentist. You guys see? You guys kind of understand what I'm talking about? And therefore, success or failure in your job can make or break you at your core. Uh, see, if you're a restaurant owner, that's a really hard job. 
but it doesn't get at your identity in quite the same way as some of these other professions. If your restaurant fails, it's not as psychologically damaging for some reason as if you're a lawyer and you get disbarred, or you're a doctor and you lose your license. That, I mean, there's so many studies that show that people get suicidal after that kind of stuff. For restaurant owners, it's like, ah, oh, my business failed, all right, on to the next thing. It's a little different. Um, and this is true even if you're in school. Some of you guys are not working yet, you're in school. And you're studying because either you yourself or your parents have like kind of ingrained it in you. In order for you to be somebody, you have to attain that profession. You have to get into that school. You have to you know, graduate with flying colors, you know, be summa cum laude or whatever. Whatever cum laude you can get. <laughs> and, uh, and if it doesn't happen, and sometimes it, do it doesn't happen, you fail out. That happens to people. You flunk a class. You have two, your grades are too low. I'm sorry. You're not going to get into med school or whatever. It happens to people. And when that happens to people, because their identity is so wrapped up in their work, they're devastated. Right? They're crushed. Because they've built their entire identity on getting into that profession and remaining in that profession. When your identity is based on your work, either you succeed and it goes to your head, or you fail and it crushes your heart. It destroys your self-worth. And the thing about that is, even if you're successful in your profession, if your identity is based in your work, then you end up being crushed anyway. You just don't know it. You end up becoming kind of an awful person. Uh, you become a jerk. Uh, one of the worst things about being financially successful, and I see this a lot in my own work in like Texas policy and politics, is we have a lot of donors who want to like work on issues, work on issues. Even though, and they made a lot of money in some industry, and they have a bright idea of how to fix everything else. And it's because they were successful in one area that they think they know everything about everything else. No, they don't. They know one. Really, they know some stuff about one area. They don't know everything about the world. But because they were so financially successful, it goes to their heads. They think they have it all figured out. Right? That's just one example. You become overconfident, and if you don't end up messing up because of your overconfidence, you become a jerk who looks down on other people for not having the kind of success that you have. Guess makes sense. Uh, but if you're not successful in your, in your work, then it, it can sink your heart. So read this quote from Benjamin Nugent in a New York Times article to you guys. He was talking about being a writer. He's not a famous writer uh, by any stretch, but he talks about how his desire to be so good at work actually hindered him from producing any kind of good work. And I think this is true for a lot of us. So when good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my work. For this reason, I wasn't, able, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad, because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written, to see what was actually on the page, rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. Um, and this actually speaks very, very, strongly to me. Because I remember when I was in, particularly when I was in law school, I was really struggling with this. I, I'm not a lazy person, I'm a, I'm a pretty hard worker, but I was paralyzed in law school and I could not study because I so badly wanted to be the best. I don't know if any of you guys have ever experienced that. You want to do so good on the test that you don't start studying. And the same thing happens in work. I, I, even this example he talks about being a good writer, that speaks to me as well. You want to be so good at writing that you don't write anything, right? You never actually get to write it. 
when you make work an idol like that, it actually hinders you from producing any kind of good work. And this is how the gospel transforms that. The gospel gives you a deep identity, a deep certainty of your worth and value that is not dependent on your performance, right? If you really believe the gospel, if you really believe the good news that Jesus Christ died, rose again, and is ruling the world as Lord, and now has raised you up to his level, you are a member of his family now, then you know that you enjoy the eternal applause of the source of all power and all delight in the entire universe simply because he loves you for who you are. If you really believe that, like I, I can say that to you and it can just wash over you, but when you really believe that, it sets you free. It sets you free from the tyranny of this, all this anxiety that work has when we live under the curse of sin and when we live under the curse of death. Uh, when the Father looks at you, you have to be confident that he sees Jesus and he is pleased with you as a child of him. Your, your identity is now built on him and what he's done, not on what you do. And that actually frees you up to do some awesome things. It's paradoxical. Uh, so, that's that point. <laughs> uh, second, the gospel gives you a new confidence in the dignity of all work, without which work could bore you. Now this comes really from, I mentioned I've been reading a lot of Luther and Calvin. This comes a lot from Martin Luther. Uh, there are a couple examples where Luther talks about the dignity of work, but I think the best place where he does it well is in his commentary on the Psalms. And there are a couple of Psalms in particular I'm going to highlight where he has a commentary where this shines through. The dignity of all work, right? So first is Psalm 145, where the Psalm says, God feeds every living thing. Okay, Psalm basically says, God feeds every living thing. Every living thing. So Luther says, okay, if you're a living thing and you're eating today, God is feeding you. But how did you eat that food? How did you eat that food? Did God, did you just say, oh Lord, please give me some food and presto it appeared on your plate? No, that's not what happened, right? He says, there's a milkmaid. This is Germany, so they have milkmaids, right? Imagine it. All right, anyway. There's, there's, there's a milkmaid uh, who milked the cow. And then there's a truck driver who transports that milk into a factory. And there's a factory worker who pasteurizes the milk so it doesn't kill you. And there's a grocer who sells you the milk. They're all doing God's work of feeding. God is feeding you through all these people. We, we just ate a meal, right? How did you eat your meal today? There were people who prepared your food. There were people who brought out your food to you. Now there are people cleaning up after you. This is the way that God is feeding you. It's through all these other people. And so that means that no matter what kind of work you're doing, whether it's very low, menial kind of tasks, you are participating in God's ministry. And so now it has a very high call. Do you understand? Uh, let's do another example. Luther goes to another part of the psalm, Psalm 147, where it says, God makes strong the bars of your gates. God makes strong the bars of your gates, right? In those days, what, what David, I think, is really getting out there, if you had any kind of security, if you had any kind of stable society, uh, it was because you had walls around your town. Outside the walls were chaos. Outside the walls were the barbarians, right? Outside the walls were the thieves. But inside the walls, you have security. People can't come in. Inside the walls, you have the rule of law. And that's represented by the strong gates and strong town and strong bars on those gates that keep the chaos out. Um, and so when Psalm 147 says, God makes you strong, the bars of your gates, Luther reads it to mean that it is God who gives you a stable society in which you can live a good life. 
And I think we all believe that. But then Luther presses it and he says, how is God giving you a stable society? It's by laws that are passed by politicians. It's through good police. It's through good government officials who aren't corrupt. That, that's their ministry to you, to give you the gift of a stable society. They're participating in God's work. So Luther, again, what I'm trying to make, what I'm trying to convince you of is that Luther makes this really awesome case that when the Bible says God is doing things for people, like feeding them and making the bars of their gates strong, it's happening through other people's work. And that's actually very, very, uh, I don't know, beautiful, I think. Because it shows that everything that we do when we're working, if you work in a hospital, if you're an engineer of any sort, you are blessing up, you're doing God's ministry just by doing your work well, just by being excellent at what you do. It gives you a, a, an incentive for excellence that is now not self-centered. Do you get that? Like our culture, I think, does an awesome job of pushing us to achieve, but the reason why it's so destructive and poisonous is because it's self-centered. It's so that the family looks good in the eyes of other people, right? It's so that you look good, so that someone will want to marry you, something, that kind of thing. Um, now, you are incentivized to be excellent at your job so that God can truly be testified. His ministry can truly be testified when you're blessing other people because you are God's fingers now. You're God's fingers serving other people. All right, I'm going to skip some stuff. So make it uh, this teaching of Luther's, I, I do want to point this out. Uh, this teacher, teaching of Luther's shows us the dignity of all work uh, whether you're talking about the humblest, most menial job, like the ditch digger, digger, the broom pusher, the toilet cleaner, it's all filled with dignity. If someone, do you realize, like, I didn't know this until I got married, uh, because my wife is very, very clean. Uh, but it actually totally transforms your life when your apartment is clean. It totally transforms your life. And if you don't ever actually clean your room, or, or take out the trash, clean the toilet, clean the tub, Sorry guys, I'm, I was not the greatest at doing all that in a timely manner. Uh, you're gonna get sick. You're gonna get sick, and, and if you never, if you never ever ever do it, you're gonna die. <laughs> you're actually gonna die. You'll get that sick. Um, and so, even the person who's taking out your trash is saving your life. That's the high dignity of work that comes under this biblical worldview. That's how the gospel transforms work. And when you believe that it totally gets rid of the class divide, right? Uh, we live right now in a culture that puts all of its emphasis on jobs that make money, that are highly skilled, that bring high status to you, and that change the world. We want to change the world. We want to do well and do good. We want to make a lot of money, and we also want to change the world, right? That's what colleges tell us to do, too. And nobody wants to be the broom pusher, right? Nobody wants to do that. Uh, no one wants to do things that, honestly, human beings need in order to live. And somebody does end up having to do them through the circumstances of life. We valorize high-paying, great-pay work, work uh, changing the world-type jobs, and we despise the doorman at the apartment building or the gardener out on the lawn. Sometimes we don't even recognize those people. We won't see those people, right? They're, they're kind of like just passing figures. And that's not right. And the Bible lifts up all work and says all of it is God's work, and it's equally good in God's sight. There's not that distinction between high status and low status jobs. It's all God's ministry. Secondly, there's a lot of pressure, and we talked about it a little bit before, on young people especially to attain jobs that bring them status, right? When in actuality, 
some young people would do better and in some senses have a more appropriate gifting for work that in the eyes of the world is lower status. They'd be happier, they'd be more effective, and they'd be doing God's work better if they didn't become a doctor and maybe settled for being a PA. I'm just kidding. Some of, the, <laughs> just kidding. Sorry. Uh, some of my best friends are PAs. Uh, what, I, what I mean is like, in the eyes of the world, we have that ranking, right? We have that ranking. It's there. Let's say it. Let's talk about it. But in the eyes of God, it's not there. And so instead of choosing the work that's appropriate for us, we try to aim for all this different kind of work because we're operating under the world's hierarchy of values, not the kingdom hierarchy of values. That's what I'm trying to say. Sorry about the dig at PAs. I, I <laughs> um, Dorothy Sayers was a British Christian writer who wrote on a wide variety of issues. One of her essays was uh, The Other Six Deadly Sins. And in that essay, she touches on the sin of sloth or laziness. And she, she's a woman who lived in the mid 20th century, and she lived in Britain during World War II. And she said at the time, a lot of people, in order to help win the war, did jobs that they were not trained for, like menial jobs. They might be doctors, but they were like cleaning the toilet, that kind of thing. Hitler was bombing them every night. They thought the Germans could invade every day. So everyone was pitching in by doing whatever they can, could to keep British society going. And this is what she writes. The habit of, of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead in terms of the work done. To do so would mean taking the attitude of mind we reserve for our unpaid, our hobbies, our leisure interests, the things we make and do for pleasure, and make that the standard of all our judgments about things and people. So we should ask of an enterprise, not will it pay, but is it good? Of a man, not what does he make, but what is his work worth? Of goods, not can we get people to buy them, but are they useful things to be made? Not uh, of employment, not how much a week, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? And shareholders in, let us say, brewing companies, like beer distributors, would astonish the CEOs by arising at a shareholders meeting and demanding to know not merely where the profits go or what dividends are to be paid, not even merely whether the workers' wages are sufficient, but loudly and with a proper sense of personal responsibility asking, what goes into the beer? If you have a, a sense that, the, that all work is dignified, you want to produce a really awesome product that you think is going to best serve people around you. Because now the motivation is not about you, it's not about the status you get, it's not about how, it's, how much money you're earning, it's about whether your work is doing its best to serve your neighbor. Because you know that by doing that, you're most glorifying God. Does that make sense? Everyone tracking with me so far? Okay. Third, and I'll, I'll be briefer because I have 15 minutes left. Uh, the gospel gives you a moral compass without which work could corrupt you. As our culture becomes more relativistic, you guys might see this and if you're working uh, as morals become a little bit more lax right uh, people are more willing to cut corners in order to advance themselves if they see an opportunity to make a little money uh, by being unethical and especially if they know no one's going to catch them they take that opportunity I've seen that at my work uh, by the way if you work in a field that's being overrun by a lot of like laws and regulations <laughs> 
and the compliance department is always after you. That's, that's, a, that's part of the reason why. Once trust breaks down because people aren't operating according to their own inner moral compass, uh, you have these burdensome outside regulatory processes in place to verify that people are not cutting corners. That's why we have this proliferation of laws and compliance regulations that kind of stuff. So basically, we have more laws to make up for the lack of a moral compass within me. But the gospel means that the spirit of Christ now dwells within you. You are a temple of Christ. You're a holy building now. And you have, therefore, the ultimate moral compass pointing to true north, Jesus Christ. I think in I think it's in Romans. Maybe it's in Romans. Paul writes about how because you have the spirit, you have the mind of Christ. So you know what you're you have the truest of moral compasses. Um, and so now Christians are a people who are not as willing to cut corners to score a better deal. And not only that, they're not willing to be as ruthless to run over other people because they want to love people. Because they know that the ultimate moral compass points to Christ who is sacrificial right uh, so we're not even talking about not just not doing things that are illegal in a lot of is in, in the world of business in uh, wherever you work you're gonna find things that people do that's not exactly illegal but it's in a gray area right it's unethical it's immoral it's not right it's not serving your neighbor it's about helping people enrich themselves and Christians are people who refuse to do that they only do things that actually serve and enhance and uh, in a way glorify their neighbor because they know that in doing so, they're glorifying God. Uh, yeah. Um, let me see what else I can do. Let's move on to the fourth one. Fourth, the gospel gives you a new worldview without which work would be your master rather than your servant. What do I mean here? There are, so, new worldview. Why is that important? How is that transformed? There are a lot, a lot of jobs that can't properly be pursued unless you have an idea of what human beings are for. Okay, and as a Christian, you have to bring your faith into that conversation to answer that question. What are human beings for? So, example, you can't be an elementary school teacher. I, I'm claiming you can't really be a great elementary school teacher without asking, what are human beings for? that you can know what to teach them, right? Um, and how do I train a kid at this age properly to be conformed to the ideal human standard? If you're a Christian, you know what that ideal human standard is. It's Christ, right? And so you're, you're teaching them to mature into Christ. Uh, for a Christian, the, the goal or purpose of human beings is to glorify God. And the perfect standard of that, again, is the total loving obedience of Jesus Christ. So whenever... It's not just teachers. It's if you're in business, if you're in law, if you're in government, if you're in healthcare, you have to get, you have to start asking questions about the foundation of what you're doing. How does my Christian worldview that Jesus Christ is supreme inform from the bottom up? You have to totally rethink what you're doing. Mental health care, right? You should have to start asking those questions. I, I can't really go in too much into detail about this, and this is why I want y'all to do your own reading and study, because I'm not in those professions. Right? Like, I don't know what it is you do. I know pretty well what it looks like in politics, I think, because I'm in that. But you guys have to do the investigation. We have to start talking as a group. What does it look like in healthcare? What does it look like in engineering? What does it look like in being a lawyer? Or whatever else you're doing. All right. Finally, the gospel gives you hope in the midst of frustration, without which work could crush your spirit. Um, and here I think uh, 
I'm going to rely on J.R.R. Tolkien's story, Leaf by Nickel. Uh, have, have any of you guys ever heard that story before? So J.R.R. Tolkien is the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. You guys know about the Lord of the Rings, right? In the Hobbit. Uh, and he actually spent 30 or 40 years of his life writing everything, compiling it. And he got to this point in the middle of writing it where he started to feel really frustrated. He was like, I'm spending all this time on this thing that I don't know if it's ever going to be published. Uh, and so he wrote his, he wrote a short story about his process writing the Lord of the Rings. In that story, there's this man named Nickel, uh, and he's an artist, and he has this vision that comes to him of this beautiful tree, the most beautiful tree that anyone has ever seen, and he wants to paint it on the side of a wall, right, in England, in some small town. Uh, and so for 10 years, he's painting the tree every night, uh, but then he catches a cold and he dies, and all that he had ever actually drawn was a leaf. After he's passed away, in Tolkien's story, he's on a train, he, he comes to and he's on a train. So it's his soul departing to heaven, right? And on, on while he's in the train, he comes across a site where the train stops and he gets out and he sees his tree, the entire tree, not just the leaf, everything. And he sort of opens his arms uh, in praise to the Father and says, it's a gift. So somehow mysteriously, this is kind of alluding to the thing about Paul. Uh, I think Tolkien was reaching back to that as well. Our lives, we're going to be spending on so many different projects. Sometimes I feel like this way about church too. Like I'm spending so much time. Uh, and at the end of our lives, we're going to look back, kind of like what my dad was looking back to, and we're going to be like, I had this tree, this beautiful tree in mind. All I got out was a leaf. But we have to have the confidence. Because of the gospel, we believe that there is life after death. Death is not the end. And so what we started in this life until the moment of our death, it's going to be continued. That's one of the hopes that we hold on to. We're going to have bodies again. We're going to be like Jesus. Jesus touched and hugged his disciples. He was eating. He was interacting. If that's going to be our life in the new heavens and the new earth. And the things that we do that were incomplete, God is graciously going to complete in that new creation. And so that gives, again, meaning to what we do now. What we do now has cosmic significance. Even if at the end of our lives we don't get to see how it all turned out, we have confidence that it's going to be graciously included just because God is a loving Father, just because He delights in us. Um, so, I, want, I said I wanted to conclude with a few next steps for us. One next step is I am going to share that handout on Facebook so you guys can look at that. Thank you for taking notes to help follow along as well. Uh, second thing is, one thing I want us to help build out going forward, especially among the older youth transitioning into adulthood, basically, like full-time adulthood, is to build up vocational fellowships of people who are in the same profession who gather together maybe at conference once a year to talk about what the idols are in their, in their profession, what the foundations are for their profession, like what it means to do a good job in their profession. Start networking with one another and start talking with one another about how the gospel starts informing and transforming their particular life. We can't do this in our individual churches because a lot of our churches are small, they're also spread out. But at conferences is a time that all of us come together and we can't have these conversations. And I think a lot of renewal can come that way. Uh, this, the second thing is a little bit more ambitious and might take a longer timeline. But I, I think one of the really cool things I've seen a lot of churches do is they start raising money uh, to have like a common investment pool. And they start investing in businesses that give them a business. So they, they hold this competition. Let me back. There's a competition, right? And there's four-profit businesses that apply 
for funding, nonprofit businesses that apply for funding, and then arts initiatives that apply for funding. Uh, so people send their proposals and they explain how their how their business or their nonprofit or their arts initiative is going to serve their neighbor and bring glory to God. I know this sounds like really pie in the sky, but if we start talking about it, we can actually build it. And then they raise money collectively, and they give some small pot of money to the winners of each of those proposals that they select. And it just helps those people get those businesses off the ground and running. Again, to be a gift to the world, and to, to be a testimony to the world that God is a great father, and that the gospel is true. So those are just two ideas I want y'all to start thinking about, uh, dreaming about, and if you guys have other ideas, I'd love to hear them. But yeah, any questions? I was going thinking about what you mentioned before, like with certain professions, like you're asking, what are humans for? Yeah. And I feel like, especially with education, that's a good example, like, because you're training students and helping them grow. But especially, like, in certain other professions, I guess I feel it's a little harder, like, for example, lawyers. I guess yeah. a lot of us have seen, like, media portrayals of criminal lawyers defending people who yeah. might be such and such heinous yeah. crimes. And even my, like I had a friend in college, he was tell, telling his mom, oh, I want to go to law school. So, and she kind of gave off this opinion, like, oh, don't go, they'll teach you how to be a liar or something. Yeah. So like the idea there, like like from your perspective as a lawyer, like how do you see that? I think, I think honestly those questions are, part of the problem is we're not even asking the questions yet. So the first step is to start asking the questions and looking into the Bible for principles that will help us answer them. Um, so for example, for a lawyer, lawyers should be asking themselves, are there cases I can't take? Are there things I can't argue? Are there uh, clients I can't take up? Or are there things that I have to take up, even if it stains my reputation, right? There's someone who can't pay, but do I need to take them on as a client? Those kinds of questions as well. An engineer needs to ask, like, what does it mean to build a beautiful city, for example? What does it mean, like, I know Chris works in water. What does it mean to provide great water to New York City, right? Like, those kinds of questions we need to start asking. Uh, and I think as we pursue conversation, some wisdom will come out. Uh, any other questions or comments? Okay, well, we ended a little bit before 1.30, so that's awesome. I know. Thanks for being here, guys.